Okay, well, good morning. It's, um, it's good to see you. My name's Steve, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm married to Tammy, who you've already met. And uh, we're jumping straight into our third week in the book of Colossians. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to Colossians chapter 3. As we've been um, journeying through this book together, uh, which really is a letter written by this person called the Apostle Paul um, to the church in Colossae. Uh, Colossae was in what is now modern-day Turkey. And um, Paul writes this letter to the church during his imprisonment in Rome. He's never met this church. He didn't plant this church, uh, but he's still concerned for them. And so as we've been exploring Paul, he writes this letter against a cultural backdrop. There's a convergence of a number of different things taking place. And as we've explored in the last few weeks, you really can't read the book of Colossians without understanding something of the cultural significance of the Roman Empire. You see, the Roman Empire was the primary force that shaped the prevailing culture of the day, and it was shaping the lives of these believers in Colossae. And so Paul writes this letter, and we see him trying, in many ways, to try and subvert, um, subvert the notion of the empire. And we see that Paul's message is really clear. He says, he says your hope, your trust, your security, your identity isn't found in Rome. It isn't found in the prevailing culture around you. There's a bigger story, a bigger narrative um, than the one that's often hijacked our imaginations. And the, the quote that we've been reading all the way through this series is this. It says, when, the, when a whole population dreams the same dream, empire is triumphant. An alternative to the empire requires different dreams animated by a different narrative. And as followers of Jesus, we have the opportunity to dream an alternative dream that's shaped by a different story, God's story. And so Paul has this audacity to say, Rome, the empire, and Caesar isn't Lord. But he says, Jesus is Lord. And his kingdom um, is where reality can, can really be found. And so as we've looked at a couple of different portions of chapters 1 and 2, and we're going to come back to some of chapter 1 later on uh, in a few weeks' time, but we see Paul suggesting this theme over and over again. Hope isn't in the empire. And so as we, and as we looked last week, our identity, who we are, is not found in the security of the empire. Our identity is found in Christ. And I guess the question that we have is what does a, a letter written over you know, 2,000 years ago, what relevance does that have to 21st century lives? And the reality is, is that we live in a time uh, where the things that we would normally put our hope in, the things that we would put our, our trust in, the things that we would look to for security, whether it's political systems or, or certain cultural narratives uh, that make up uh, our world, are slowly beginning to crumble. And as a result, as followers of Jesus, we're, we have to learn to lean into 
an alternative story. And, and, and as we lean into that story, we, we're faced with a challenge and an opportunity. The opportunity is, is that we really take serious that, that challenge to, to lean into Jesus' story, to, to lean into the bigger narrative, that, that all the other stories aren't real. Uh, they don't carry life. They don't bring life and freedom. But the story that Jesus invites us into, his story, God's story, is, is one that brings life. And the challenge is, do, can we lean into that story with all that goes on around us? And then also, uh, uh, the, the opportunity is, is that, that, that all the other stories, I don't know if you've noticed this, all the other stories are slowly beginning to crumble. And, and we're surrounded by people who are looking for a new story to live in. They're looking for a story that works. And, and, and we believe that we have that story, don't we? Yes, yes. One of you agrees. Um, you see, our, our culture defines success, and it can be some, it's quite, kind of a crude definition of our culture's definition of success, but ultimately, our culture says money, sex, and power uh, is where everything is at. And, um, and actually, the biggest story, the story of, uh, of Jesus, the story of his kingdom isn't one of money, sex, and power, but if of faith, hope, and love. Uh, that's what we're leaning into. Now, I don't know if any of you uh, like clothes shopping. Anybody? Any men like clothes shopping? One. Okay. I, I really loathe clothes shopping. It's, um, it's something that I just detest. Living with four females uh, makes that even worse. Um, and one of the things that I'm convinced by is that they purposely make shops really hot and uncomfortable just for men. I don't know if you've noticed that. You know, you kind of being dragged around H&M thinking, when can I go to Starbucks? And, uh, and, uh, and there's just this sense of like, this is, this is horrible. And uh, I'm pretty sure clothes shopping um, has the same effect on nearly all men world over. And, um, and, and, and actually, guys, you're not alone. If you think that, you're not alone. I've just got a little video to prove this, if you can press play.
about you, but some of those guys look broken. Um, uh, I, um, I went shopping on Friday uh, for some new clothes. It's, um, it happens about three times a year. I'm wearing some of them today. And um, actually, this shopping trip took me about 10 minutes. Um, I saved about £80 because there was a sale on. And uh, I did it in the comfort of my living room. Um, and and um, I'm, I'm convinced that online clothes shopping was invented for men. Um, and it was, it was really easy, guys. I just went on. I chose some things, stuck it in the basket, checked with Tammy that there was no kind of clothing errors about to be made. <laughs> hit, hit send, and my clothes arrived the very next day. It was, it, it was amazing. Job done. But whether we love or hate clothes shopping, um, I think most of us would agree clothing and our clothes choices are important. Our clothes com- uh, communicate something about us. Sometimes our clothes tell us about a person's role in life, uh, like a doctor or a policeman or a fireman. Sometimes our clothes tell us about what we like you know, like the music we like or, or the culture that we are part of. Sometimes clothes reveal the state of our emotions. And sometimes it could be that we just got up too late to iron. Um, uh, our choice of clothes can, can be used to attract people, but they can also be used to repel. Clothes also have the power to affect ourselves emotionally, maybe Maybe less so for guys, um, but, but depending on what number that dress size was or those trousers were that you tried on will depend on the effect of emotion that you have uh, for the rest of the day. I've been witness to that. Um, uh, uh, sometimes we can feel inc- uncomfortable in our own clothes. Maybe you've been on a long journey or away from home longer than you expected and you've been stuck in the same clothes for too long and those clothes start to get a little funky. Not in, not in, the, not in a good way. You know, those clothes get a bit funky and um, at times like that, there's nothing better than getting home and putting on a fresh set of clothes. Sometimes we can use our clothes to hide behind what's going on inside, to, to mask something. The truth is we all know the power of clothing. And so as Paul writes this, this letter to the church in Colossae, against this backdrop of, of empire and this backdrop of competing stories, he begins to tell them what their life should look like. That life isn't found in observing rituals and moral codes. It isn't found in in adding anything to what Jesus has done. And so as we we get to chapter 3, we begin to see what this anti-empire lifestyle looks like. And we see that Paul uses this metaphor of, of taking off and putting on clothes. And essentially what Paul is saying is it's time to change out of those old clothes and put some new clothes on. Hence, I dressed in some new clothes today. And, 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 so, and so first of all, we see Paul tells us what not to wear. Um, he was the first one to come up with that phrase. And um, so let's pick up in, 
in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then he goes on in verse 5, and he's literally using imagery of taking off an old set of clothes. And he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he lists these five things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, most Bible scholars would agree that Paul is pointing essentially towards um, this understanding of people living lifestyles of sexual immorality, whether that be lust or inappropriate sexual behavior, whatever it might be. And he's, he's addressing both actions and thoughts, both illicit sexual behavior and our ability as humans to use sexuality to fill, fulfill our own greed and desire. Now, if you're here for the first time this week, um, I want you to know we don't spend every Sunday talking about sexual ethics, um, <laughs> um, but we do want to preach the whole counsel of God's word. And so we've got to a portion of scripture that talks about that. It's also particularly awkward because all the teenagers have remained in the room uh, this week, including my daughter, wherever she is hiding. There she is, there she is. But essentially... What Paul is saying is that human beings often take this wonderful gift of human sexuality and we turn it in on ourselves. And and the reality is, that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is worship turned in in on ourselves. And when we worship at the altar of sexual desire, we make it all about ourselves. And, you know, we might think... What's that got to do with us? You know, Paul, you've already told us Paul is writing to a culture within the Roman Empire. Didn't they have gods and goddesses of sex? Didn't they, you know, they worship sex and sexuality? You know, we're, we're so more sophisticated than that in the 21st century. What has that got to do with us? Well, the reality is we, we live in a culture where 30% of all web traffic was pornography related. We live in a world where one piece of Google research said that shows that porn sites receive more traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. In the UK, 70% of teenagers say porn is seen as normal by their peers in school. 46% of teens said that sexting, whatever that is, is part of everyday life as a teenager. And two out of three girls and 50% of boys said growing up would be easier if porn was harder to access. And it's not just our young people. As one Christian research organisation found, 75% of Christian men view porn at least once a month. 
41% of Christian men admit to being addicted to pornography. And there's the other shocking one. 30% of church leaders view porn regularly. I think we would all agree our culture is just as messed up sexually as when this letter was first written. You see, as, as Christians, we're not called to be repressive about sexuality. Quite the contrary. The Bible has a high view of sex. And when sex is placed in its right context, it has a wonderful opportunity to create human connection and intimacy. And Paul says, take off those old clothes. Put to death those ways of thinking, those ways the culture has shaped your sexual identity. See, our sexual identity isn't meant to turn in on itself. It's not, meant to be, it's not meant to be an altar of worship that we go to. It's not a gimmick to sell a product. And yet every day, every single one of us are bombarded with a skewed perspective, a skewed story, a skewed narrative that, is, that shapes this kind of twisted view of sexual ethics. And Paul says, take off those old clothes. Rid yourself of those destructive patterns. I think if he was writing to us today, I'm pretty sure he'd say this, turn on those internet filters. Learn to value others, not as objects to fulfill your personal gratification, but as human beings made in the image of God. Don't give in to sexual exploitation of women and young people, but find ways to fight what is right. Now, let me just say this. In a room this size, in a church as diverse as ours, I'm sure there are some different views on human sexuality. And what I, what I, one thing I want to make clear is these verses aren't meant to be used to persecute to show hatred or bigotry to anyone who holds a different view to what we might have. In fact, Paul's plea is for compassion. Verse, verse 7, he says, You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. You see, he's speaking to a bunch of people who have been there people who are just as messed up as everyone else. And you see, the challenge is to all of us, to all of us to consider what is shaping our views. Are our views shaped by our personal grappling with the scriptures, or are our views shaped by the last thing we saw on TV or clicked on on the internet? And you see, Paul is equally challenging, not just about our sexual conduct, but the way that we use our words. Verse 8, he says, but now you must also rid yourself of such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. And here's the thing, isn't it? In church, 
we can get hung up on sex. You know, we, we get hung up on sex and we can m- totally miss the destructive nature of the things that come out of our mouths. Like the way we speak. Like our behavior when we're upset. Like the way we talk about other people when we think they've wronged us. One of the places where this is a, is a reality that's just totally out of whack in our culture would be social media. I don't know if you've noticed just how unaccountable people are for the things they say on social media. People on social media will say things with very little filters. I don't know if you noticed that. But if you got them in a room and stood them next to you, they would never dream of saying it. And the reality, that leads to even more challenging things. It leads to extreme things, cyberbullying and harassment. You know, we see all these celebrities closing down their Twitter accounts because some idiot just can't control what he has to say to them as if it's going to make a difference. You see, I think Paul's big concern as he writes to the church in Colossae is that our... is that with our sexual misgivings uh, and the way we speak, those, those two things, if they're abused, have the power to tear community apart. And so he says to these believers, living in the conflict of the culture around them, he says, don't leave, don't leave your brains at the doors. You know, don't sell out to casual sex. Don't sell out to casual talk. But be renewed in the knowledge of the image of God, your creator. Step into the real story, not the fake story uh, that we're sold every single day. Take off those clothes. Those clothes that bring destruction, that destroy community, that divide humans. Why, why would we do that? Why? Because it says, it says this in verse 11, because this community that he's describing, it says, it says here there's no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, whatever they're called, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Someone's phone. Uh, Paul is calling those people to be a diverse and different kind of people, to to portray a different story to the culture around them. That this community, the church, won't be divided on ethnic lines. You know, um, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or Greek or a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a barbarian. You know, barbarians would have been considered uh, the least civilized people of the day. There's no, there's no division between socioeconomic standards, slave or free. This is a, a totally counterculture movement of people united in Christ. And it's a community marked out in love for one another. And so there's there's things that we shouldn't wear, but what should should we wear? 
And, uh, and Paul tells us this in, in verse, verse 12. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And so we see this imagery of taking off these old rags that our culture gives us and putting on a new set of clothes. Clothes of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Clothes that bear with one another, forgive each other in love and continue to live in unity. N.T. Wright, the the theologian and Anglican bishop, he he says it's a bit like this. He says, imagine uh, there are two towns next to each other. And, and, and in one of those towns, it's made up of people who choose to live under verse 5 to 9. Okay, they choose to, to live that way. And then the other town is made up of people who choose to live under the rules of verses 12 to 17. And the question is, which town would you rather live in? My guess is most of us would want to live in the town that represents verses 12 to 17. But he says there always will be a cynical person who says the first one. You know, I want to be free. I want to have a good time. I don't want to be a wimp. I don't want to be a goody two-shoes. I don't want to have to say sorry all the time. But the truth is, these clothes that Paul is inviting us to put on, they aren't for the faint-hearted. It isn't for the weak, the weak world. You need to be more than a wimp to learn to forgive someone who's wronged you. It's hard work, isn't it? Especially when you feel justified. It takes courage to show kindness. It takes a strong person to live with a heart of compassion. To have patience for people who continually let us down. He goes on in verse 15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful that the measure of Christ uh, dwell among you richly. Let, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So this new community we're invited into, these these clothes that we're invited to put on, draw us into a community of worship and thanksgiving. You'll notice that I said earlier that um, our culture turns worship on itself uh, and, and lives in a culture of idolatry. Notice that Paul says, instead, step into a community where the gospel is centered, where the scriptures are taught, and where people worship God together with gladness and gratitude in their hearts. Where else do we go for that kind of community?
one that crosses racial and ethnic lines, one that goes beyond social economic uh, divisions, one that look, looks beyond the rubbish that we all carry and loves and forgives and bears with one another, one that is redeeming humanity and honours one another as an image bearer of God. Where else do we find a culture like that? Maybe we find it in our office, play, our office in our work environment. Maybe not. Um, maybe we find it in political systems. Not this week. <laughs> and in all of this that Paul is suggesting, I think the reality is it's much bigger than you and I. That Christianity, that following Jesus isn't just some nice moral code of conduct. So the Bible teaches us that God, God's good creation was overcome by darkness. And as part of his rescue plan through the ages, God arrives in the fullness of time, in the flesh, in the form of his son Jesus, and he prays the price for us all by dying on a cross and breaking the power of darkness and the grip that that has on our lives. And you see, Jesus was stripped of his clothing and put on shabby rags and he hung on a cross for us all. And on the third day, he raises from the dead and he brings with him this new age, this new age to come where God is making all things new, where he's renewing all things. And this new age intersects with the old age. And, and we find ourselves living with the tension, living with the tension that the kingdom has come and the kingdom has yet to arrive. And as we do that, Jesus ascends. It says the the first part of this passage, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and he sends us the Holy Spirit who brings renewal to the church. And this, this community of people, uh, in this community of people, we see a sneak preview of what's to come. We see a sneak preview of this new humanity, what this new humanity is meant to look like. And so this idea of putting off those old clothes, of, of putting off a lifestyle of sin, isn't something we do in our own ability. It actually flows out of who we are in Christ and what he's done and what he's done for us. And so Paul's message is take off those shabby rags. Take off those clothes because they're not appropriate for the age that has started. And he says, put on these new robes. And he says, the things that used to rule our lives shouldn't rule our lives any longer. That we belong to a different kingdom, we belong to a different story, we belong to a different community, and we're building a brand new humanity. That old life, that old life we once had, it's spiritually dead. And we can put it off. Because it's not truly who we are anymore. 
Christ has risen from the dead and we have been raised in Christ. And our lives are hidden in Christ until that moment of glory. We've been made new and he's renewing us all in the image of the creator. And one day we will step in to his glory and that renewal project will be complete and everything will be made new. And then he says this, whatever you do, verse, verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word, and so he says what you say or deed, how you conduct yourself. And we see Paul is, is, is kind of summing up what he's just said. So whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. <laughs> 